And keep your Bibles open to the scripture, for there's a fantastic scripture to memorize. And I wish that I had had more time to memorize the scripture myself. And um, it's, it's one um, that we would want to um, at least know where it is found and know the message of this text. And if you have the opportunity to do it, to go ahead and, uh, um, and, and, um, and me- memorize it. Take the time to memorize it and learn it by heart. Um, <clears throat> it's been etched in my memory for quite some time now, for over 30 years. I remember this um, happening one Sunday morning when I was, uh, as I was uh, waking up. And um, there had been this... this uh, um, this controversy brewing for weeks before this Sunday morning, and uh, we had heard about this, and even before this, conver- con- this controversy happening f- over 30, actually just about 34 years ago, um, another controversy of the same kind uh, erupted, um, which rocked the entire Christian church all over the world, especially uh, the evangelical churches of, of Protestant evangelical churches all, all over the world. This middle-aged man, preacher on television on a lazy Sunday morning. Um, and um, <clears throat> let's see. Um, yes, about 34 years, 34 years ago. And I watched this preacher confess his sins of sexual immorality before his 7,000 church audience and before his worldwide audience. And, then, and at that time, he arguably was perhaps the most famous uh, evangelical preacher or televangelist of, of the day. And um, to be honest with you, I did not know quite how to um, make, what to make of this uh, very public confession. I didn't know whether or not to believe this guy. And he started out with these powerful words and as he bared his own soul in front of all those people in front of the whole world, he says, everything that I will attempt to say to you this morning will be from my heart. I will not speak from a, pre- a prepared script, he said, knowing that the consequences of what I will say and that much of it will be taken around the world as it should be. I am positive that all that I want to say, I will not be able to articulate as I would desire. But I would pray that you will somehow feel the anguish, the pain, and the love of my heart. I have always, every single time that I have stood before a congregation and a television camera, I have met and faced the issues head on, he says. I have never sidestepped or skirted unpleasantries. I have tried to be like a man and to preach this gospel exactly as I have seen, seen it without fear or reservation or compromise. I can do no less this morning. That's how, that's the, you know, those were the opening words, that, the opening paragraph to this very pretty powerful monologue. And I'm sure by now you, you will probably jog your own memory and you will know exactly what I'm talking about. The man continues on and he says, I do not plan in any way to whitewash my sin. I do not call it a mistake, a mendacity. I call it sin. I would much rather, if possible, and in my estimation, it would not be possible to make it worse than less uh, than it actually is. I have no one but myself to blame. I do not lay the fault or the blame of the charge at anyone else's feet. 
for no one is to blame but Jimmy Swaggart. I take the responsibility. I take the blame. I take the fault. You still remember that? Or you now remember what, I, what I'm talking about? I was just a young man, barely, you know, dry from the baptistry. And I didn't know what to, you know, what to make of this. And I was a very young Christian, very, impression, you know, an imp- very impressionistic Christian, young and very green. And then he continues on in this powerful monologue and he turns to the media, first of all. He turns specifically to Ted Koppel um, on Nightline and specifically addressing him and, and, and in a general sense, the media of the day. And he confesses that it had been very, the media had been very hard on him, but objective and fair in their treatments of him. Um, of course, he doesn't, what he doesn't mention was the fact that he himself had been embroiled in another controversy prior to his own. And this was the controversy of a compatriot or a colleague of his who belonged to the same denomination as he did. Somebody by the name of Jim Baker, you will remember this one as well. And, and, and his role in, in, in this person's demise and his insistence that he ought to be punished and reprimanded and all those things. And, and now the tables have turned. He doesn't mention that he was one who pushed for the removal and defrocking of this minister who was a colleague of his. And, and then after that, he turns to his wife and begs for her forgiveness. And then he turns to his children. And then he turns to his denomination, the Assemblies of God, openly confessing that he, had, he has sinned against them too and begs for their forgiveness. And last of all, he turns to God himself. And then he quotes the psalm that was read to us today, or parts, uh, parts of it uh, were read to us today, Psalm 51. He quotes it from memory, all of it, the entire chapter, and I was, and I was shocked. I didn't know what to make of this impressive you know, feat. Of, in those days, I could hardly recite John 3.16. And here's this man tears rolling down his eyes, facing the camera, facing his congregation, facing the entire world and whatever the entire world thought of him at that point. And I was confused as to whether or not to believe all of it. And so he turns to God and begs for God's mercy. He appropriates the memory of David's own words or of David's own moral failures and his fall. And he uses David's own words to express his deep sentiments before God. It was a very powerful and moving experience. If not confusing for somebody like me at that time. You see, Psalm 51 is David's own psalm. As many of the psalms that we find now in God's good scripture here. Um, To the reader of to the readers of scriptures that we are, we are here today, it harkens back to David's cataclysmic fall. We know the story very well, all too well, from being a king who did everything right, who couldn't do anything wrong, loved by God and by God's own people, whose hands had not been stained by the blood of Saul, 
and the blood of the lineage of Saul? Or a man who was so beloved that, you know, had perhaps in retrospect, had this sin not happened in his life, who knows what, you know, what his life would have been or could have been from that point on to the rest of his, of his life. But because of this one sin, David, David's uh, uh, life turns for the worse in, in some sense. He became a king, a tottering king on the brink of collapse and ruin. Psalm 51 recalls David's sins of adultery and his conspiracy to commit murder, the murder of a loyal and a faithful comrade in the person of a man by the name of Uriah. We recall the young, the beautiful and lonely Bathsheba, the wife of one of David's mightiest men who, who was with him through thick and thin. And I could just imagine another part of Scripture where David was longing for some, you know, for water. He was thirsting for water and he was, you know, facing up. You know, he, was, he had surrounded the city and he wanted a drink of water. And, it was, and I could just imagine, imagine uh, Uriah was one of those 30 or some men, the closest around David, surrounded him, kept him safe from the from the, the wrath of King Saul back in those days when he was a fugitive running for his life. Uriah was one of those men. And what makes this even so much, so, so surreal was that Uriah was not even an Israelite. And yet he took after David. And he took after David's God. And then I remember that one time when David was thirsty and I said, I wish I, 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 I would like to get, have some water from that well behind enemy lines. And then his closest entourage, his, his mightiest of warriors went to that well, fetched water for their, for their leader and gave it to David to drink. And that time David, still in his right mind, could not find the courage to drink that water. And he poured that water, as, as and Scripture tells us, as a libation offering, as a, basically, a drink offering. He offer, he, instead of David drinking that water, he poured that water as if to say, Lord, this water belongs not to me, but to you. I offer this to you because this water has been fetched on my behalf by my men at, you know, at the risk of their own lives. Lord, I pour, this, is, this is for you. I'm not drinking this. Everybody loved David. He was like that. Those were his best, some of his best days. This was his worst. For Uriah was one of his most faithful men, one of his mightiest men, whose loyalty to David and to David's God, David repaid by stealing his wife and getting him murdered, conspiring to murder him, and did murder him. Psalm 51, all of that, Psalm 51, recalls the hand of God in holding David accountable to his sins. And of course, Psalm 51 also recalls for us 
the beginnings of a painful season of restoration for David. And it also recalls the unleashing of painful consequences which would stay with David for the rest of his life. Psalm 51, perhaps, is best known for its sheer power of words. The power of words meant. The power of words that probe the very heart of God. The power of words that peel off the layers of pretense, of facade, and of prevarication. Psalm 51 gives us a biblical model for what remorse ought to be like. And we've seen many half-remorses out there in the world. Psalm 51 gives us a biblical, a true model for what it really is like to be truly contrite, to be remorseful, to throw ourselves at the very mercy of God. And it, is, it, is, it breaks down neatly into three parts. There's a part of lament, where David, if we go through, and we're not going to have the time to do that today, I wish we did, but go home today and, and spend time meditating, reading slowly, uh, you know, soaking up this, this beautiful, this hauntingly beautiful psalm, your psalm. It's, he starts with lament. Lamenting his offense, and he, he mentions that, Lord, I have had many, I, I, here are my transgressions, big and small. And, and then he, he gathers all of those things and he says, I have only sinned, I, I have one sin, and that sin has been committed to no one else but to God. And he says, this offense, all of these offenses that I now gather up together as my sin, Lord, this, this was all done in your presence, and therefore it is to you and to you only that I have sinned. And he flings himself to God and, and begs for mercy. How can we forget these words? It begins this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God. O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then he says, verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He starts out with this lament, and then he goes from lament to appeal. He appeals for the mercy of God and says, Lord, and, and you will notice when you read the entirety of this psalm, Let's, let's read a few, a few verses of it. It says, verse, five, verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He's appealing for the mercy of God. And what's really, what's really uh, so, so amazing about this is that um, David would not have been ha would not have had the uh, the audacity of being so upfront with God had he not had this 
solid relationship with God to begin with. In other words, he knew God all along. He knew that he could do this before God and that God somehow, somehow would listen in his own mysterious way. And so he appeals for forgiveness. And you will notice that not a single iota, not a single uh, uh, a word is uttered about the consequences of his sins. He makes no appeal to ease the consequences of his own sins. Rather, he appeals for mercy and let God do the rest. And then he moves from, uh, from appeal to hope. Where he envisions what life will be like when he is restored to the graces of God. I mean, this is a guy, this is a man that, you know, God, God really, really came down hard on him. And yet, even through all of that, he, you know, he never lost hope because he knew the very heart of God. He knew that God, yes, is just, but God is also loving. And that somehow or other, if he flings himself to God with all of his heart, with no pretense and no, you know, sense of hiding, of playing the game of charade, that somehow or other, there will be light at the end of the tunnel and there will be restoration even with the worst sins that anyone could commit. I'm sure you've thought of this, that if David had committed these sins today, he would be incarcerated perhaps for the rest of his life. And if he, you know, in some states, he'd probably lose his life. This is a very intimate portrait of a man that has been completely broken by his own sins and goes to God with no pretenses, flinging himself to the mercy of a loving God. But there is a surprise in this text. And you would not necessarily catch the surprise if you were reading your English Bible and you go straight to verse 1. Verse 1 does not begin this text, at least not, or this chapter, at least not in the Hebrew Scripture. In the Hebrew Scripture, verse 1 is verse 3. Verse 1 and 2 in your English Bible has, have become the uh, part of, you know, the, the, the introduction to this, to this text. They're every part of, the, of, this, of this psalm. And we find at the very head, at the very top of this, um, of this psalm, These words, to the choir master. Now what's so special about those words? To the choir master. You see, David's intimate encounter with God, yes, a model, a pattern for personal remorse and contrition, has been appropriated and incorporated into the very worship of God's people. That is to say, this pattern has become not just a pattern for your personal contrition, but for our personal contrition. Whenever we come together to worship God, this is what God wants to see, longs to see in all of us together. The sense of lament for the sins that we've committed against God, for our personal sins and for our communal sins the sins that happen in our world of which we might find ourselves saying to ourselves, I had nothing to do with it. 
God wants us to be able to say to, to, to ourselves, I identify with the worst sins of the world and I put myself in the middle of that and I will pray to God, for, I will lament to God, I will beg for mercy, for forgiveness, for restoration. I, I will cling to hope in behalf of those who could not pray, other, who could pray otherwise. David's intimate encounter with God has become a model for corporate spirituality which tells us that this, is, this pattern of remorse and contrition with all its lament and appeals for forgiveness and hopes for restoration and, and for witness are meant to go beyond simply praying this in the privacy of our own homes, but for actually doing this something that, that, that you know, informs our worship as God's people. Group spirituality, which means which means that this is something that we as a church ought to visit often. Yes, even churches sin against God. And if that is so, then we, our church, must learn how to, do, uh, how to lament together. And to bring ourselves, playing ourselves to the, mercy, to the mercy of God, to the mercies of God, and to appeal for forgiveness and to appeal for restoration, and to cling to the hope that God gives us in Jesus Christ our Lord. But it is even bigger than that. Think of a concentric circle, you see. You're in the middle. That's the personal, uh, the personal part of this, uh, the spirituality of Psalm 51. You're in the middle, you know, the, the middle. That's the personal aspect of it. And then outside, you, know, you, you see the concentric circle getting larger and larger and larger. yes. Even the church needs contrition. But even larger than the church is our nation and perhaps even the nations of this world. Yes, even nations sin against God. And today I'm reminded of this, what's going on in, in Europe and the war that has been, that, that started over a week ago. Today a great sin is being perpetrated against a smaller nation by a bigger neighboring nation. And God will demand accountability. And as I was watching, I was so moved by that video clip that was shared to us leading up to our prayer this morning. And I couldn't help but cry because I, my, you know, I, it's so moving to me to find all those people or those people singing about peace when there is no peace in their land and wishing us happy Sabbath when their Sabbath is anything but happy and peaceful. And here we are. No bombs are falling. We're not hiding in somebody's cellar. But if we are to appropriate the memory of David's psalm as a people, then we must identify ourselves with the sins, not only of ourselves as individuals, but identify ourselves with the sins of the, of the larger groups to which we belong and even to the, the groups to which we, 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 we don't find ourselves belonging. And then with all of that, to find... Uh, to find all of that is an opportunity for us to pray. 
for the sins of the world. To pray that the Lord would forgive the sins of the larger groups of groupings of peoples so that there could be restoration in the world. Psalm 51 reminds us that our prayers need to be multi-layered as this psalm is also multi-layered. We need to lament for our personal sins, yes. Appeal for forgiveness, yes. And hope for redemption and restoration, yes. For ourselves, yes. But we are to go far beyond that. Far beyond our personal sins to that of the sins of the larger world. And to put ourselves in the middle of that. And to be remorseful for those people who have, found, who have not yet found it in themselves to be remorseful for their own sins. And to put ourselves beside them and say, Lord, forgive us. Include yourself. Forgive us. Even if you could not even imagine beyond your wildest imagination that you're part of that. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. And start praying this for those people in Ukraine. For those people in Russia who are praying for peace. Remorse and contrition need to be applied to the level not just of ourselves, but of our church and of our nation and of the nations of the world. And that way we become part and parcel of this humanity, caring for every single one in this world when we pray for them as God would want us to. And we are to begin by praying at all these levels to pray even if others do not feel remorse quite yet. We pray for them. We pray on behalf of them. And by doing so, we appropriate the power of words truly meant. The power of words that probe the very heart of God, the power of words that peel off the layers of pretense and facade and, and prevarication, the power of collective memory to transform our world by lamenting over its, own, its sins, our sins together, identifying fully with the world, by appealing for forgiveness and by hoping against all hopes for redemption and restoration for all peace for all with us at the forefront of this change. It's, 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 it's quite amazing how David ends this text. Uh, I mean, this, this psalm. And for, for the life of me, for the longest time, you know, I thought that, you know, this is something David, David seemed like it's, it's a little, I thought that David was being presumptuous and, and all this. I want, I want you to follow me along in your Bibles as he ends his, his, his uh, you know, famous psalm here. Um, take a look at this. Where can I start? All right, let's start with verse 14. Follow me along, all right? Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God, my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would, I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. In verse 19, they get a little of this. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And you know, David is practicing saying, Lord, Lord, when I get out of this, I want to be the one to tell you of your mercies to people as well. This is what it means to have the power of collective memory. And we ought to thank David for having the courage to write Psalm 51 for all of us today. Thank you, God, for giving David the courage to write the psalm and for having the psalm become, be appropriated by the worshiping community of God as the very model for its own way of praying, its own way of spirituality. Thank you, God, for meeting David where he was. And thank you, Lord, for meeting us where we are. Let us pray in this way. And the Lord who listened to David will listen to all of us today. Father God, we can't wait for Jesus to come. In the meantime, help us, oh God, to be like David, to lament over the sins of not just ourselves, but the world, to appeal for forgiveness, and to hope against all hopes for restoration and redemption, not just for ourselves, but for all, not just in the realms of the Spirit, but in actual, in the actual lives of people. Help us to pray in this way and to gather together all of the memories of times past based on this beautifully haunting psalm of David, Psalm 51. In Jesus' name, amen.